Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And tonight we've got um, a, a real pleasure uh, returning to the podcast is uh, my good friend, Mr. David Dean Barrett, who uh, we heard from last year. Um, David kindly came on the podcast to talk uh, about uh, the uh, his book, 140 Days to um, Hiroshima, uh, and the dropping of the two atomic bombs. And tonight we're going to be discussing a different theatre of war altogether, the air war uh, over Europe, uh, fought by the uh, American 8th Air Force, who uh, fought uh, day raids over Germany um, alongside the, the RAF, the British Royal Air Force that fought flew by night. Uh, and we're going to talk uh, about the uh, strategic rationale of the US Air Force, uh, and a, a number of the key questions uh, besides. Uh, without further ado, let's go to David now and start this evening's conversation. Okay. So, um, welcome once again to the Explaining History podcast. David Dean Barrett, who's been very kind uh, enough to, to come back to us. You might recall David and myself talking uh, over a couple of podcasts last year um, about the final days of the Japanese Empire uh, and the decision uh, making of um, the Truman administration on the dropping of the two atomic bombs. Um, we're taking, we're moving theatres now. We're looking at um, the U.S. Eighth Air Force in Europe and its missions from England. Um, over uh, occupied Europe, and particularly obviously the uh, strategic bombing of Germany. Um, welcome, David. And um, I think that the first thing I'm, I'm kind of curious about is really what was the American uh, the, the, the American military's view of air power? What because every country has something they're trying to achieve with aircraft. What was America trying to achieve? 
Well, it was really a, a three-part strategy. The first part of it was that they wanted to do everything they could to destroy German war industry. And in the United States, they decided that the way that they were going to go about doing that was by daylight attacks against specific military targets. Uh, now, clearly in the time frame of World War II, we didn't have anything close to the accuracy that American air power can deliver today. But it still meant that bomber formations were attacking specific uh, uh, in war industry, whether that was synthetic oil, whether that was coal, whether that was ball bearings factory, whether it was uh, aircraft factories, uh, where they manufactured obviously German warplanes, etc. They were going to attack those kinds of uh, German facilities uh, that were producing war material. So that was the first aim of, we'll say, strategic air power. The second uh, aim was that they also wanted to, and this developed probably in the latter part of 43 and certainly by the beginning of 1944, in advance of the D-Day invasion, uh, they wanted to wrest control of the skies over Europe from the Luftwaffe, uh, because the belief was that uh, absent having air superiority over the beaches of Normandy at the time of the invasion, that the invasion likely would not be able to be successful. And so beginning, <coughs> excuse me, in early 1944, <clears throat> the United States essentially under uh, General Doolittle changed its strategy from protecting the bombers uh, that were still flying these missions to destroy war, a German war industry, to releasing them to go after the Luftwaffe and sweep them from the sky by the time of the Normandy invasion. The third was the heavy use of, we'll say, tactical air power, not that the strategic bombing campaign against German war industry stopped, but after the, the uh, Normandy invasion, uh, it was the use of tactical air power, uh, P-51s, P-47s in particular, P-39s, et cetera, uh, not only going after whatever remaining Luftwaffe there still were, but going down onto the ground and going after Wehrmacht targets, uh, uh, also uh, railroads, bridges, anything uh, that, that was helping the, the Wehrmacht to continue to fight the battle. And so what you saw starting to happen was uh, Wehrmacht divisions having to deploy much further away from the front, delaying them from the front, um, their armor having to travel only at night because these the skies were constantly uh, being uh, controlled uh, to a very large degree by Allied air power, uh, certainly heavily from the 8th Air Force. So those would be the three major elements of uh, American war power, I mean, uh, World War the 8th Air Force, I'm sorry, in terms of its objectives during World War II. So, in a way, um, a lot of what you're talking about is the, the kind of the prelude to the Allied invasion of, of Normandy, the depletion of um, the, the German war machine, um, uh, the, the destruction of, of, of infrastructure, the destruction of uh, its ability to produce more aircraft, and the depletion of, of, of the Luftwaffe. Now, there, there's, there's an ongoing debate really from the Casablanca conference between Churchill and Roosevelt about A, whether a Normandy invasion is desirable. And if it is, and Churchill really has to be, have his arm twisted on this one, 
Um, he has long and happy memories of amphibious landings in the First World War that he's, um, you know, has um, uh, great regrets over. But he, when he kind of agrees that, oh yes, okay, so we will do this, this you know, titanic clash against the Germans in 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 northern France. The date that Churchill wants it to happen keeps getting shoved back and back. And so he wants, you know, the, the last moment that Churchill really has um, influence over Roosevelt is at Casablanca, which says, well, let's let's do the Mediterranean first. And Roosevelt and um, his advisors um, at, at the time uh, basically say, well, the, the British have been fighting for quite a while. They seem to know what they're doing and we'll, we'll go along with that. So the thing, interesting thing for me is you've got the, the Eighth Air Force depleting German uh, uh, abilities a lot on the ground um, uh, for, from the air um, and smashing, just destroying German infrastructure. Knowing that um, the, the end goal is to be able to um, have a land invasion across the cross-channel uh, land invasion of France. So the Americans, I suspect, were probably biding their time with the British, thinking, you know, they will they will get their finger out eventually. Do you get a, a sense of that? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, there were some, obviously, uh, I think, including Marshall, uh, among the American military leaders who wanted to invade in 43 and felt like they were probably capable of, of uh, invading in 43. Churchill, as you pointed out, was probably to some degree, at least by American view, dragging his feet. The other thing that, but that I think did influence Churchill was the tragedy of Dieppe, which was by far and away much, much, much smaller, heavily Canadian and some British. Mm -hmm. And if I recall correctly, only around 10,000 uh, soldiers actually participated yeah. in that, but it was not well planned, and the size of the force was so small that it was completely unsuccessful. And I think mm -hmm. they suffered. I think it was well over fifty percent casualties. Yes, it was enormous. They, they did learn that um, you can't drive a tank up a shale beach. That was the the one the one thing they 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 learned about that. Right. So uh, he obviously had been scarred by that experience, meaning Churchill as well and felt like the invasion had to be much bigger, much more powerful than anything like that if it was going to succeed. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, a, a counter argument, I guess, to that, obviously it didn't win the day, was that uh, the longer you waited to do the invasion, the more, the stronger the German defenses would be by the time we do invade. Mm -hmm. The other factor in it was, and this wasn't so much coming from the Americans, albeit I'm sure both the Americans and the British would have agreed, that they needed to keep the Soviet Union in the war. Yeah. And so the, the other voice, so to speak, that was being heard in this argument was Stalin, who had been demanding a second front uh, mm -hmm. for quite some time uh, because the, the Russians were fighting 80 plus percent of the mm -hmm. Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front. And so they desperately wanted another front. Now, Stalin never recognized uh, the contribution that the air war was making I don't believe, no. uh, anyway, in Europe and the forces that it was, German forces, that it was drawing back into continental Europe to defend mm -hmm. uh, German uh, positions throughout Europe and in particular Germany itself. Mm -hmm. Huge numbers of artillery, including the feared 88, all kinds of other uh, uh, anti-aircraft 
uh, huge amounts of other, uh, we'll say, war-related materials like cement mm. to build various kinds of fortifications in the east. And clearly, uh, huge numbers of Luftwaffe pilots, in fact, the best Luftwaffe pilots, were all being drawn into continental Europe to fight against the combined Anglo-American uh, in uh, air power that mm. was constantly attacking day and night the Germans. And so he never really got a whole lot of credit for that. But to answer your question, anyway, finally, it was a combination, I'd say, of Stalin's voice and finally the Americans saying, you know, we're going to do this. We, we've mm. got to do this. And the other thing I think was that despite the fact that obviously it was still terrible, terrible destruction of uh, Europe uh, and European cities as a result of air power, if they had simply relied endlessly on air power to do it, the destruction would have been probably even worse. Yes, uh, would have been had we not finally invaded uh, uh, Europe and forced the Germans to fight us, at least in some places, mm -hmm. away from the cities. Not always, but some places. Well, uh, the, I mean, one of the the kind of the the, the defining uh, narratives for for Great Britain of the the Second World War is the is the Blitz, the uh, after the Battle of Britain, the the bombing of British cities. Uh, and um, this sort of period of, of of defiance, and this is how kind of British people sort of tend to imagine themselves um, to to the world. But when you look at oh, it's my son. Uh, no, I haven't. I'll be with you in a little bit. Sorry, Sorry listeners, a bit of a bit of the real world there for you. Um, so. Yeah, if you look at the the devastation wrought on on Germany. And this is where the kind of the, you know, the, the convenient historical memory doesn't really doesn't really work. It is infinitely, infinitely greater. Um, the, uh, the destruction of German cities was uh, and, um, and, and Japanese cities at the end of the war, but were, were, was, uh, I think, a, a, a city that uh, experienced 50 percent destruction was doing quite well. Right. Um, and the, the aerial photos at the end of the war of places like Cologne and Berlin are just um, kind of ha haunting, really. They are. Um, one thing I, I, I guess I'm curious about is uh, by 1943, the combined bombing offensive has, has begun where American, um, uh, the 8th the Air Force is flying by day and the Royal Air Force is flying by night. Do you get a sense uh, that there was... Um, close coordination between the two air forces um, in terms of targets, or was there a degree of rivalry? What do you? What is your? What's your sense of that? Uh, my sense is that there was probably very little coordination by that point in time. Uh, I think the U.S. by '43, despite the fact that '43 is really the first year where the United States starts experiencing really large losses uh, on these bombing missions. <clears throat> that nevertheless, they've convinced themselves that they're gonna strict stick with, I'm sorry, uh, strategic bombing of German war industry uh, during the day. Uh, up until really 43, the, uh, obviously the British were still trying to convince, Bomber Harris was still trying to convince uh, Acre at that point in time that they should join the British uh, in nighttime raids uh, against, the, uh, uh, against Germany. And, to a large degree, my take on that was that uh, his belief, Bomber Harris, this is sort of contrasting the two, was that they could ultimately defeat Germany, break their will, 
as a people to fight by literally targeting not military targets, but civilian targets. Mm -hmm. In other words, they would simply bomb cities in Germany at night. Primary reason for switching to that was they'd started off earlier in the war doing some daylight, suffered terrible losses, and decided to do nighttime raids instead. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, they, they, the argument was that they were going to destroy Germany's will to fight. Mm. Well, that proved to be unsuccessful throughout the entire duration of the war. I mean, yeah. Hitler literally had control still of Germany right up until the time in the bunker that he decided to commit suicide. Yeah. So yeah. Failed to do that. The Americans had convinced themselves by 43, going back to your question, that they were going to stick with strategic bombing. Uh, and they believed that they could eventually win this war of attrition. Mm -hmm. uh, the key, ultimately, I think, uh, probably to the American success, and it was something that the British never addressed, and I guess to some degree, as long as you were doing nighttime raids, it wasn't nearly as necessary, but they didn't really use fighters to escort these bomber formations. The Americans, on by contrast, were doing that from the very, very beginning. Right. Uh, the very earliest raids in August were actually escorted by Spitfires, uh, beginning... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think it was in 43, if I'm, not, if I'm remembering correctly, the primary escort for the United States had evolved to the P-47 Thunderbolt, mm -hmm. which is a powerful plane. Uh, and actually, in, in some respects, superior to a number of the Luftwaffe fighters, in fact, faster, dived more capable, and certainly with its eight 50 caliber machine guns was an incredibly powerful uh, plane. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, all that big power and weight came at a price, i.e. range. Mm -hmm. And the missions were getting deeper and deeper into Germany. And what the Luftwaffe figured out very quickly was the Thunderbolts couldn't escort them. So the, the entire length of the mission. So they would simply wait until the, the Thunderbolts peeled off and went back to England. Mm -hmm. And then they would attack the bomber streams, uh, yeah. creating huge amounts of damage. 
That didn't finally get resolved until the introduction of the P-51 Mustang, very late in 43, uh, early, into, uh, early in 44, when they started arriving in large numbers, which, by the way, was an incredible, uh, say, cooperation, I guess we'll say, in terms of airframe, American, and engine, uh, Rolls-Royce Merlin, British. Uh, when they married those two things together, because the Mustang had actually been around for a little while. Yeah, uh, but yeah. when they married those two things together, that became the best fighter in the war. Mm-hmm. And it just it allowed American aggressive American pilots to just reap havoc uh, on the Luftwaffe. Yeah. And it had um, a, a kind of a, a polystyrene fuel tank underneath. That yes. Could, um, give it additional, drop tanks. Yeah, That's correct. Additional flight time. Yeah, they did start introducing those, by the way, on the 47s and even the 39s drop tank, but they still did not have the range of the 51. The 51 could escort all the way to Berlin and back. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the great problems that the Luftwaffe faced during the Battle of Britain was uh, flight time. Um, uh, And once against the British figured out, you know, well, all we need to do is is waste the uh, the Messerschmitt's time in the air for long enough. And they'll, they'll have to peel off and go home, and then we'll shoot the bombers down. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so right. um, yeah, it was it was about twenty very, minutes over England. Yeah, wow. very little at all. And and the I mean, again, with with not wanting to get sidetracked there too much, but um, the Luftwaffe was wasn't ever really um, designed for the kind of bombing campaign that uh, all of a sudden Hitler decided that they would give a try. You know, it was, this was a, these, these were battlefield aircraft, strategic uh, light bombers, um, uh, not the, the kinds of big four-engine monsters that the, the British and the Americans built, which, again, that shows you that uh, the long view, because things like the, uh, the, the, the B-17 and the Lancaster were um, uh, dreamed up, before the outbreak of hostilities. These are creations of the late 1930s. And it right. should be that, that, that the long view in Britain and America is you were that to prevent something like the trenches of the First World War happening again, you would create yes. these, these giant machines which would fly over the battlefield and take the fight directly to, um, to the enemy. Yes. Actually, you, you do bring up, if you let me introduce, uh, mention something real quick. So... Uh, you asked me at the beginning of this, or what were the what was the American strategy in terms of the Eighth Air Force? And I gave you the three things that I would I felt as though was what the Americans were attempting to achieve. Uh, but one of the things that I, I would also add to that, to a degree, uh, kind of corresponding to what you just said here a moment ago, is the United States and the UK came up with these four-engine bombers, as you said, in the late '30s. Uh, however, by the time of the outbreak of war. Uh, and we'll just talk, because that's the focus of our conversation today, about the 8th Air Force. The reality was that while they had these weapons, they really didn't know exactly how they should be used in war. And so a part of the ramp-up was not only is uh, this incredible buildup by the United States from virtually nothing, because the 8th Air Force didn't even exist other than on paper at the, at the outbreak of when the United States entered the war, But you also had to take these new weapons and really learn how to use them in war. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in the very early days, for instance, of the bombing campaign, the first mission was flown by the Americans bombing mission uh, in August of 1942 against uh, uh, some rail facilities, basically, in France. Uh, 
there were only 12 bombers. Well, in the early days uh, of those bombing missions, there wasn't what we refer to as the box formation that eventually became very popular that was flown by the United States to maximize the use of all their uh, uh, 50 caliber machine guns in terms of uh, a defensive formation and also by creating this box make it more difficult by, for Luftwaffe fighters to penetrate the box and shoot down, obviously, American bombers. All of that had to be learned. Curtis LeMay, for instance, is the guy that introduced that box formation. He also said that once we begin our bombing run over the target, or ordered, maybe I should say, that the bomber formation is going to stay in formation and go across the target. This is despite the fact that you have all kinds of flak that you see, obviously, in all these World War II videos, these black puffs of smoke, which are German ADH predominantly, firing rounds up into the uh, uh, sky at the altitude where the bomber stream is, and they explode as shrapnel, blowing mm -hmm. holes potentially in these planes. The reason for staying in formation despite taking that kind of flak is you're not going to hit your target if you allow evasive maneuvers by those bombers. And so despite the fact that there's still going to be a lot of collateral damage, they're going to force the bombers to stay over target while they're bombing. After that, they can take evasive maneuvers to get back home, but they're going to stay on target uh, to begin with. And so the point I'm making here is that we had to learn all yeah. of it, and it took time to learn all of this. And you're gradually adding more planes all the time to the mix, starting yeah. from literally 12 to by the latter part of the war, having missions of over 2,000 planes at a time. Bombers, that is, escorted by another almost 1,000 fighters. Yes, and so it's um, a kind of a, you have vast air armadas by the end yes. of the war. Yes. One of the, there's a, a fantastic book, um, I recommend it, I've often recommended it to um, my, uh, my uh, listeners, by a guy called David Reynolds, who's a British historian who lives in America, um, called The Long Shadow, and he writes about really the long shadow that the First World War cast over the 20th century. And he, he said that, you know, the First World War had in, informed much of what the British thought about the Second World War, but kind of some of the things that the Americans un would anticipate about the Second World War. You know, they um, had a, a lesser involvement in the First World War, but still people like Roosevelt, who'd been obviously Woodrow Wilson's naval secretary, thought, I don't fancy much of that, thank you very much. And the, 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 the um, use of air power, as fascinatingly David Reynolds is arguing, he said basically that Roosevelt, bef long before he'd committed to um, intervention in the Second World War, even long before the outbreak of the Second World War, thought to himself, well, how do you stop a fascist dictator? He says, well, you build 10,000 bombers and either you fly them or you give them to your ally that needs them and Hitler won't dare. Uh, obviously, this is to kind of slightly misunderstand Hitler, um, who was quite happy with German cities being raised to the ground because he thought, well, I'm, I shall build the new, the new, uh, the, you know, the, the new Berlin here. But um, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting when you look at these kind of machines and you think, well, that machine is the product of a, almost a political idea yes. of, of how we defend democracy, what this machine is for, or how we defeat a fascist. Um, and I, I really, um, I think when you look at 
the you know these huge Boeing factories being able to put out a B fifty a a B seventeen or a Liberator in something like just under an hour, and that's happening at plant after plant after plant across America. There was ultimately, I mean, it comes down to this this one banal fact about war that fascism can't defeat mass production, ultimately. Um, which is, is reassuring, I guess. Um, but um, the, 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 one of the great contributions that America brings to the war is its ability to mass produce and to standardise. Yes, um, yes. And the, uh, the ability to, to mass produce pilots as well. Yes. Now, one of the interesting aspects of that that differs from both the uh, Germans and the Japanese is that the Americans throughout the war uh, would take experienced pilots once they gained combat experience, as I said, starting from scratch, meaning the 8th Air Force, none of their pilots had any combat experience. But one of the things that they started doing relatively early on was taking theater combat pilots, bringing them back to the United States and using them to train Mm. new pilots. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, huge advantage, you just talked about, obviously, the ability of the United States to mass produce. But the other thing, not only could they produce the planes and they obviously had the manpower to actually get people that wanted to be pilots, but they also had a huge advantage in oil. Yeah. The United States, I think the number is something in the neighborhood of 60 percent of the world's oil mm-hmm. during World War II, uh, provided obviously ourselves, obviously helped our, our allies, the British uh, as well in that regard, but it meant that we had plenty. Not only do we have a safe place to train our pilots in the United States, but we also had plenty of oil so we could afford to spend, to provide the uh, fuel to those planes to have our guys train substantially before they went over into combat as well. And yes. I think over time that paid very large dividends to our pilots because Again, going back to sort of Germany in the latter stages, one of those elements that we were going after was beginning in especially the first part of 1940 was to sweep the Luftwaffe from the skies. Mm-hmm. Well, the component of part of that, which was the first prong of that, was destroying German war industry. And a huge part of that was destroying oil. Yeah. Their ability to produce it, whether it was synthetic or uh, natural, synthetic, They uh, the Germans were producing a substantial amount of the oil by converting coal into gas or aviation fuel in this particular case. Because of the impact that the strategic bombing campaign was having on the oil industry in Germany, it meant that, uh, one, engines before they were even put in planes were getting less, we'll say, burn-in time to make sure that there weren't any problems with the engine, And secondly, it meant that the pilots that the Luftwaffe could recruit at that point in time were getting fewer and fewer training hours before they were thrust into combat. Sure. Um, One of the the kind of the most, uh, one of the longest running campaigns uh, by both the RAF and um, the US Air Force. I'm not sure it was the 8th. It might have been another um, uh, branch of the US Air Force was the destruction of the um, the Cloesti um, oil refineries, which is, and once those have gone, that's when Germany has to rely on synthetic oil, which it, it, you know, is a very inefficient way of producing aviation fuel. Yes. Well, I 
think there we shall um, leave it for now. But I'm I do hope we can um, return to uh, aviation perhaps at some point later in the the year if that's okay, David. Absolutely. Um, it's been an immense pleasure to talk to you again, and I, I know we had some great uh, feedback from when you were last on on the podcast. People really, really I'm glad to hear that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you have, you there is a documentary, isn't there, that people could yes. watch? Yes, it's called, it's called "Heroes of the Sky: Heroes The of Mighty Sky. Eighth Air Force." It okay. aired in May of 2020 on National Geographic. I do know that you can find it, I believe it was American dollars, $4.99, you can rent it on YouTube. Uh, quite a few of the cable stations, at least in the United States, uh, are still offering it on demand. And so you can just look up that title and it should come up. I was the, uh, I guess in terms of my title, the uh, consultant, slash, uh, uh, historical consultant slash producer. I, I helped a lot in uh, developing really kind of the storyline and the featured five characters uh, in the documentary. Uh, it included LeMay, uh, Doolittle, Tibbetts, uh, Eaker, and a guy, a fighter pilot by the name of uh, Preddy. Preddy was, uh, at least during World War II, ultimately one of the most uh, prolific fighter pilots that the United States had. I think he ended up with 27 and a half kills and ultimately died on Christmas day of 1944 during the battle of the bulge, uh, shot down and killed by friendly fire. Oh God. Good he God. was, uh, he had just, uh, knocked down two more German fighters and was after his third was going across the battlefield and American anti-aircraft, uh, hit his P 51 and severed his femoral artery. Um, he, managed, he managed to land the plane, uh, but bled to death before uh, they could stop it, unfortunately. So, very tragic story. Very tragic. Very tragic. Well, maybe maybe next time we'll get to talk about Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> oh, all right, that'd be fine. Okay. Well, thanks so much, David. And um, once again, a real pleasure. And we'll catch you again soon. All the best. All right. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.